Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. It is my delight, privilege, honor, and, and, and frankly, this will probably be too much fun of an interview, but I've got my buddy Ronnie Cohen of the Cohen High Priests. No relationship to the Cohen brothers as far as we know, but Ronnie's stateside. He lives in Israel, and he's over here doing some ministry with other churches that he leads tours. You've been a tour guide for how many years now? Well, besides the two years that I was unemployed because of COVID, right? <laughs> uh, I would say about 33, 34 years. Yes. You had an interesting history. You did not start out growing up in Israel saying, I'm going to grow up and be a tour guide. You had a, a little different tract. Well, I, I, I'm originally from the Lower East Side of New York City, the melting pot of America. My parents are a mixed uh, marriage, like almost everybody else in, uh, in New York City. My mother's side of the family was very Catholic, Italian-Irish, and bad combination, by the way. And uh, now, 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 wait, you know, I'm Italian, Irish, and German. Now, be careful. Well, I found out very early that the big spoon in the kitchen wasn't for cooking. <laughs> and uh, my father's side of the family were uh, Jewish Greeks that immigrated to the United States sometime around 1913, 1914. So you grew up in this family, different backgrounds, obviously. Yes. They, was your mom a devout Catholic? Did she go to well, Mass? Well, well, I remember as a kid, about five or six years old, my mom used to go to church across the street, St. Teresa's. Okay. Okay. But as time went on, being that my name was Cohen, and she thought probably you know things would be difficult for me later on if I was going to be brought up in the Jewish faith. So she had a conversion at some point to become a Jew. But it was not done by the way of the Orthodox laws. It was done more reform, where she didn't have a mentor for four or five years to see if she's ready to be a Jew. Reform Judaism is quite simple. She went to the, see the rabbi, sat opposite her at the table. The rabbi says, so you want to be Jewish. Okay, you're a Jew. And that was that. <laughs> so, you know, my mom started making chicken soup. It still tasted like minestrone. <laughs> Oh, I never heard that story. What, what's your dad thinking about all this at the time? Well, I, I'm, I'm assuming at some point in their life they were in love. Mm. But, uh, you know, like many relationships, things get kind of spoiled because of finances. I didn't come from a very wealthy Jewish family. I came from a lower middle class. My dad had to work two jobs in order for us to stay in a nice apartment building. So there was a lot of uh, tension at home concerning uh, finances, yes. You consider New York home? I consider New York home. No, I consider Israel home. I've officially left the United States around uh, late October 1971. 71. Yes. Now, you served time in, uh, we'll talk about your military stories, but you were in Vietnam? Yes, and I'm still walking around with the scar. Not from the war, but the way I was treated when I came back. I'm waiting around for an apology. Who's our friend uh, that has the ministry to Vietnam vets? He's disabled, and he he talks about coming back. He was burned so badly in Vietnam. I, I remember the gentleman's name. He was yeah. a Navy SEAL. Yeah, and yes. uh, he tells a hysterical story about a tragic event when he's in a body bag, and then he's alive, and it scares the helicopter pilot. The copter's shot. He goes in the water. Next thing he knows, he's in an ER. They're opening him up. Phosphorus catches on fire in the OR. Exactly. He's burned all over his body. But he tells a story about holding these 
seminar where men will stand in line for an hour to hug him. And uh-huh. he says, thank you for your service. And I'm sorry the way that we treated you when you came home. Okay. Well, I'm still waiting for someone to say I'm sorry to me. I don't think it was fair. I was 19 and a half mm. coming home. And I just, I, I don't care about not being treated with respect, but to be treated I don't know. You know, friends of mine left, and uh, people asked me, how can you kill children? The VA hospital was not very uh, mm. accommodating. Instead of helping me with whatever wound I had, I had a back wound. So after the trauma of post-Vietnam, you somehow end up... Well, this is what happened. It's, it's quite simple. I was part of that massive odyssey of youth traveling through Europe in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, basically, they just packed the backpack. I don't even know I said goodbye to anybody at home. Just opened the door, walked out, and traveled for three years before I arrived in Israel. You were a hippie. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, wasn't a drug addict no, or anything. No, 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 but I mean, that, that I was mean, the error. That was the post. Yeah, yeah. I had long hair. Yeah. I listened to good music and, uh, you know. You're still listening to good music. We have that in common. So you spent how many, three years, you end up in Israel on a kibbutzim? Well, this is what happened. I was basically alone. I was hurt emotionally. Sure. Uh, I didn't have close friends. I mean, the only companions I had were people who I met occasionally on boats, ferries, or trains going to one place and we'd hang out for a while then i meet other people and hang out for a while basically everybody was doing the same odyssey the same trip starting off in europe and somehow winding up in india and that's what i did so you left the vietnam war 1971 and now you're in india three years later three years later i was in india for about five or six months you know looking to find myself but i noticed i wasn't there so i left you heard from a friend that you could go back to Israel and live free. Well, this was it. I was on a boat in leaving Brindisi, Italy, going to Corfu. And I met this exotic woman on the, the boat who gave me information about a kibbutz. She was very exotic. Her name was Sheila from the Bronx, <laughs> of all people. And uh, she gave me the address of a kibbutz by the Sea of Galilee in Israel. And for those I, that don't know what a kibbutz is? It's a, like a communal farm, if you would, okay? I had no intentions of going to Israel. It wasn't part of the plan. But I did get stuck in Turkey in February of 74 in a snowstorm. And I had no place to go. And I had just enough money to get me on a student flight to Tel Aviv. So I had the address in my hand wearing my long Afghan coat, which was also my sleeping bag, and my hair was halfway down my back, I showed up at the kibbutz and said, Hi, Sheila sent me. (laughs) And the rest is history. And you have fun stories and sad stories about working at the kibbutz. You were there how many years? I lived on a kibbutz almost four years. But at some point, and I lived in the volunteer section. There's a, a section where volunteers come from all over the world. It was kind of cool. You know, you're hanging out with guys from England, South Africa, you know, and, and girls as well traveling around. And we kind of lived like in our own little community on the kibbutz. And you worked the farm? Yeah, you we worked had the, bananas, the full accessibility yeah, yeah. like everybody else. Yeah. We were friendly with the kibbutz uh, members and everything. But someone approached me and said to me, you're Jewish, right? I said, yeah, okay, kind of, because I've never really had any Jewish upbringing except for getting a bar mitzvah. 
And uh, they said, yeah. I said, well, you know, you could become an Israeli citizen under the law of return. I said, well, I don't, not really thinking you're living here, and why do I need to be a citizen for? Well, your status on the kibbutz will be different. You won't have to share a room with two or three other guys, and, you know, you'll have AC, because in the meantime, I had this propeller on the ceiling. And I said, oh, okay, so what am I going to do? Just go. So I went to, to the nearest town, Tiberius. I went to the Ministry of the Interior. They, I said, to, I want to be a citizen. Okay, sign here. Mazel tov, you're a citizen. That simple? Yeah. Cool. I go back to the, to the kibbutz. My status has changed. I don't have to share a room with anybody. They give me an apartment with AC, Mr. Popularity. Yeah, yeah. That's it, man. I said, great. This is great being a citizen. Oh, by L- the way. By the way, <laughs> about four months later, I receive a letter in Hebrew. Now, my Hebrew is not that good. I mean, I can't really, I could read the words because I know the lettering, but I don't know what I'm reading. So I spoke to the secretary of the kibbutz, and she said to me, Mazel tov. I said, I don't like so many people telling me Mazel tov here. And she said, well, you have to go in the army for two years. I said, I just got out of the army. <laughs> well, you know, you got to go in the army because you're young enough to go. They did you a favor. They took a year off. Oh, seriously, how long did I have to serve? Two years. Oh, that's not too bad, I guess. No, it was too bad. So I took it with a grain of salt. I went into the military. It really was not that bad. The training was much, much harder than it was in the U.S., for sure. But it just so happened in my particular platoon, half the guys were English speakers. I don't know how that worked Mm. out. You know, people who live in Israel from the United States or South Africa or from England. So, you know, every time the sergeant would tell me to do something, I turned to them and say, what did he say? What did he say? And little by little, I started to pick up Hebrew. But the time that I was in the service, that two-year period, nothing happened in Israel. There were no wars going on, no conflicts. Basically just, you know, Training and hanging out with the guys, it was not that bad the two years I was in the service. You finish your compulsory two years, and then? And then I had to serve, until I was 45, I had to serve 22 years in the reserves, which means that every year for about a month, I say goodbye to whoever's at home, and I go in the Army. So we're not like a, a second-class soldier. We're, we're, we're the same guys that were in the Army together for two or three years. That's our reserve unit. So again, we do patrols along the border, we pull ambushes, we do outposts, and that's what I did. Unfortunately, during uh, my time uh, in reserve duty, the war in Lebanon began in 1982, so we were called up. And you have some stories to tell about that. Let's move to how does a former New York boy who comes back from Vietnam with some pretty unfortunate wounds... Uh, who travels the world to find himself, who ends up in Israel in a kibbutz, who then goes to find out he can be a citizen, now serving in the army for two years, plus reserves, and you become a tour leader? This is the thing. When I, I, I didn't want to live on the kibbutz for the rest of my life. You know, I'm from the city that never sleeps, you know. And to live on a kibbutz, I was kind of isolated. I didn't want to be It was a, okay for a while, but... Yeah, you know. I didn't want to be a, a farmer... And also somebody, a male who's single in a kibbutz, everybody kind of knows your business. I'm not, and I wasn't promiscuous or anything, but I didn't like the idea of you know, just hanging out at the kibbutz. So I decided to move off into the city. During the time I was in a kibbutz, I met a young lady who was visiting her sister who was in the army. We became very friendly, and then eventually we married. And I went to live in Jerusalem, and I just went from one job to another. Um, I don't know if you can hear from my tone. I have a little bit of a problem with authority. 
So I don't necessarily like to go to work, you know, eight to five and have someone telling me what to do all day. So I, I did a number of odd jobs and everything. And uh, But during that time that I lived in Jerusalem, I had to still serve my reserve duty. And as soon as the war in Lebanon began and the regular army was in, uh, I was in a unit that was kind of not a special forces unit or anything, but it was specialized that they were combat engineers and they happened to have a company of tanks. And I was in a tank company, so I was assigned. And we were one of the first reserve units to be called mm -hmm. in to the war in 82. And did when you were called up for that reserve, how long were you in at that point? Well, normally we do reserves for 30 days, but because there was a war, war going on, initially I was there for nearly two months in the eastern front of Lebanon. We weren't involved in fighting with terrorists. We were involved in fighting the Syrian army, which had an air force and tanks, you know, war. After that, I got called up for the, the siege of Beirut. Then I got called up again in the winter. I think I did about maybe 100 days of reserve duty that first year, you know, going back at intervals. For folks that don't know the country, I often illustrate it for Westerners. It's about the size of the state of Connecticut. And, New Jersey. Okay, New Jersey. And you've got the Mediterranean Sea on the— uh, West. Thank you. The west side. You got the Jordan River as sort of a dividing line down the country. On to the east, then you have Jordan. Yes. In the north, you have Syria and you have Lebanon. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded basically by not so friendly folks well, in the ocean. Yeah, at least today, we have a, uh, a peace treaty with, with Jordan, Jordan and a peace treaty with Egypt. It doesn't mean that we love each other, but we're not shooting at each other. And for again, for those that don't know, Egypt then is down on, on the it would be like seven o'clock further outside the clock, so to speak. And you, you use the phrase via Mara, via the, the way of the sea, via Maris. I call it the International Highway or the King's Highway because yes. that's the way you traveled around. 5,000 years ago, that was the main trade route in the Middle East. So you and had to go through Israel. You had to go through Israel. That's why the land of Israel has always been the, uh, a land bridge between three continents. And every conqueror who came to land knew that if they took over that trade route, they controlled trade. If you control trade, you control money. If you control money, you got power. That's why the land has been like the most fought over piece of real estate forever. Which I don't think most people understand. And you've got Bet Chan would be your east-west highway, essentially. Yes. And, uh, and then you have Megiddo that went from west-east. Yes. So, again, for folks, you got a very small piece of real estate. But if you're going to do anything in that part of the world, you've got to go through the way of the sea. You've got to go through Israel. Exactly. And so it's it's sort of a stop sign traffic place. Now, again, let's talk a little bit about borders. You and I have talked about this just for our friends. I don't know how many times I've, I've gone to Israel, but let's just say it's been 20 times and Ronnie has been my buddy, friend, tour guide, uh, mentor, I don't know, a dozen of those times with different size groups, small and large. And I always learn from you. Um, we go to the Golan Heights and talk a little bit about the borders of Israel. So, again, for folks that can't see this, but if we're looking at uh, a clock, at about 10 o'clock, we've got Lebanon. More towards 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock. We have Syria and Damascus. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, yes. And then down from 2 o'clock down, we've got Jordan. Exactly. Correct. And then you come all the way to the 6 o'clock. You're, Egypt. You're touching on Egypt. Exactly. And then the, the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. Right. So just understand that. And 
when we talk about borders at the Golan Heights, we stand up there, there's some maps, there's some historical events that occurred up there, and you used to use a series of these silhouette maps to explain exactly. the borders. Yeah. Uh, give us, if you can, uh, we can't see that, okay. but give us well, an let explanation. Me explain. The Sea of Galilee is like two-thirds up, because there's still land above that. Uh, it's situated below sea level. It's the only freshwater body of water that is below sea level. But the whole eastern side, right off the shore, is the Golan Heights. It's a mountain range. Uh, up until June 1967, the northeastern shore and the Golan Heights was Syrian territory, which meant that at any time, which they did from 1948 to 1967, just to make life miserable, they would shoot a couple of mortar rounds or artillery rounds into the kibbutzes around the Sea of Galilee or machine gun fishing boats or send a couple of artillery rounds into the, the town of Tiberias nearby. Not enough for Israeli retaliation, but enough to make life miserable. And it was like that for 19 years. Their beef against us, I don't quite know, maybe just because we were a Jewish state, but it wasn't a matter of occupying land because that was the land that was appointed to us by the United Nations. But uh, yeah, it was a war of attrition for 19 years. After the Six-Day War, or just during the Six-Day War, the Israelis managed to push the Syrian forces off the crest of the Golan Heights, push them back east across the plateau, about 15 miles, and then that became the ceasefire line between Israel and, uh, and Syria. In other words, we took over the Golan Heights. Now, for many, many years, like oh, even till today, as far as the United Nations are concerned, all of that is occupied land, which needs to be returned to Syria. Syria is not exactly the most established country of the world right now. They've had a civil war going on there for the last five or six years. They have nine million of their citizens are now, you know, homeless out of the borders of, of Syria. It's a very uh, difficult regime. Assad, he's you know, been murdering his own people. And they're backed by Russia. They're backed by the Iranians. They have all kinds of different terrorist factions that are within the government. And the people of the world don't quite understand that if we ever give up the Golan Heights, things will be even worse than it was before 1967. Uh, only recently, I think it was about five years ago, while Trump was, was still around, he was invited to come to Israel, he was taken to the Golan Heights, and he officially made a statement that now the United States government recognizes the, uh, um, the annexation of the Golan Heights to the land of Israel. It's the only country in the world, by the way, that does that. And for a tourist, if you were to go to the Golan Heights, you would notice the technology that uh, monitors and protects the yeah. northern part well, of the we country. Well, we still have a row of outposts, observation posts, intelligence units all along the border. But besides that, we have uh, you know satellite right. radar. My point being, though, it's not developed. It's not like there's houses and condominiums. And this is no, basically a mountainous region. Well, again, it's a mountainous region, but we have about 36 agricultural uh, right. Right. No kibbutzes up but there, but not no big cities When you or think anything. of occupation, I think many oh, people occupation. go to, they go to, oh, there's cities and they're occupying No, this. there was That's, nothing there. The, the Syrians country. had basically yeah. turned the Golan Heights into one big military camp. From uh, there were a number of Druze villages, yes, but besides that, there were no big cities that we destroyed and de deplaced right. people. No, not not at all. So it's it's really a border. 
more than anything. It's a border than anything else. Yeah. The buffer yeah. zone, yes. Right. Let's talk about these borders also because you often hear the land of Palestine. Okay. What does that mean? First of all, there was never an independent country called Palestine. There was never a government called Palestine. The whole idea of an indigenous people, look, an Arab, an Arab population that lived in the region for a while eventually called themselves Palestinian. But where did the name actually come from? You know, you can look through Old Testament, look through New Testament. There's no mentioning of a name called Palestine. So how can somebody say that they've been there for thousands of years? And if they were there thousands of years, then they were Jewish. All right, but uh, I think so. The etymology of the word is debated, but Philistia. Now I'm gonna tell you where that term Philistia comes from. There was a seagoing people way back over three thousand years ago from Asia Minor and mostly the Aegean. That was a period of time that there was a lot of uh, volcanic eruptions and earthquakes happening in that particular region, in that region. You know, put in your mind right now the lost city of Atlantis or something. So you had a very advanced cultural race of people coming from that area who were very much in tune with astrology and mathematics and uh, they were like the only people around at that time that had iron. I mean, the early Israelites during the time of David did not have iron, but these people called themselves the Philistines and they lived along the southern coast of the land of Canaan. Or, you know, in early Greece they called the area Philistia, where the Philistines lived. Eventually, after about a thousand years or so, you know, their uh, community and their people kind of disappeared. It was all gone. Most of that was all the land of Israel. But after the second revolt against Rome, there were two revolts, one from 66 to 70 AD, which was the most horrid time for the Jews because that's when it's Rome Titus. destroyed Titus, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. And that was the end of Jewish rule in, in the Holy Land until... 1948, we were always ruled by somebody else. And to interrupt, that's occupation. You've got outside forces that are occupying the land right. of Israel. In other words, the Jews were just tolerated in their own homeland, but ruled by somebody else. And then at some point, about 50 years after that war, around 131, 132, during the reign of Hadrian in Rome, the Jews had another revolt against Rome called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, which ended really bad because now... Uh, the Romans couldn't believe that the Jews actually had another war against them, so Hadrian declared that he's going to paganize Jerusalem, tear it down and rebuild it as a pagan city, change the name to Aelia Capitolina, and he wants to erase a thousand years of Jewish history to the land. So he expels all the Jews from Judea, and he renames Judea by taking the name of uh, non-existent people who don't live along the coast anymore, the Philistines. So therefore, he renames Judea Palestina or Philistine. That's where the term Palestine comes from, but not from any indigenous people called Palestinians. So today, when we talk about the Palestinian conflict, who are these Palestinians? Well, I'm going to say that, you know, during the Arab conquest of the early 7th century, the whole area was controlled by, by the Muslims. At that time, also, there were many people who lived in the land who were Christian. They're the remainders of the Byzantine Empire, all right? But during the time when the Muslims were there, you know, the name of the land was called Palestina or Philistine. So I'm going to assume that the Arab community that arrived in the 7th century started calling themselves Palestinian. Is it fair, again, for the Western, because uh, we don't know. We don't know our own history very well, much less world history and Israel's history. Is it fair to say all Arabs were Islamic 
at one point or most? Because you, you talked about the Byzantine Empire. Um, I, I think this is what happened. You had a Christian community that started living within the region. Uh, officially, the Roman Empire called the area Palestina or Philistine, where they had a military governor looking over it. Uh, the same thing during the Byzantine Empire, Palestina. Uh, what had happened once the Muslims or the Arabs took over the land in the 7th century, you had a whole group of people who were Christian, mainly Greek Orthodox, Greek Catholic, all right? So as time went on, the people who lived in the land, their common language was now Arabic, all right? The customs were Arabic, but they held on to their faith as Christians. So in a sense, we call them Christian Arabs. That would be part of the community as well as, well as the Muslims that would be referred to as Palestinian. Let's come way forward uh, in, into our more current history. Um, when, when you hear people and you, you hear this from, you know, you bring Western tourists over there and uh, from other countries as well. And sometimes they're um, indoctrinated is maybe too hard a word, but they're, they're sold up a line of what happened to things. And you, you run a knife-edge balance because you have to represent not only your country, but you're trying to help people from around the world understand why this land is important. And so you don't want to just vilify all Arabs or vilify all Palestinians, but there's a tension. There is a tension, yes. Look, what had happened, this big strife between Arab and Jew really did not was not a centuries-old problem. The problem, I think, literally began with the British. The British occupied the land immediately after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, after the First World War, and it became a uh, British protectorate or British mandate. And they called it the British Mandate of Palestine because that was the name of the region. Obviously, there wasn't a Jewish nation quite yet that would return it to its uh, biblical name, Israel. Ironically, this is very strange, That, but most Jews who lived in the land called themselves Palestinians because there was no other name to call them. Arabs just called themselves Arabs, but the Jews called themselves Palestinians. Now, once there was the uh, partition plan by the United Nations, and then, of course, there was a war that broke out, and then they started having set borders, all of the West Bank remained in Arab hands. So if that's the argument right now, then why wasn't there a land called Palestine in 1948? The Jews didn't call themselves Palestinians anymore. Now they call themselves Israelis. The Arab community started calling themselves Palestinians. But if the West Bank and Gaza was still in, in Arab hands, why wasn't it called Palestine? Because the newly formed Jordanian government on the eastern side of the Jordan River took over everything on the West Bank, and the West Bank was called Jordan. So if anybody had a beef, it's not against the Israelis. We weren't occupying the land, the Jordanians were. But I guess it was okay because it was within the Arab uh, family. You know what I mean? What explains the, you know, you said not necessarily friendly, but there's an understanding between Jordan and Israel. What explains the... Look, there's always been some kind of relationship between Israel and Jordan. Even during the time of Abdallah. Abdallah was like, let's say, the, I, don't, I'm, I may be wrong, the grandfather of the, the king today. But he, even back in the 1950s, he had inclinations of trying to make some sort of peace deal with Israel. It would be in their better interest, because we're right next to each other. 
as far as uh, economics and such, we were pretty much advanced as a new nation, where they pretty much were not too advanced. And unfortunately, he was actually assassinated on top of the Temple Mount by a Palestinian. And from that point then, they took young King Hussein, whisked him off to, to England to go to a military school, and then brought him back again later on. But there's always been an understanding between the Israelis and the Jordanians. And then, you know, back in the day, Ariel Sharon, which was one of the most notarized, notarized celebrated, and very yeah, right-wing, yeah, and also yeah. Rabin, you know, we recognized each other's countries, and there was great respect between uh, King Hussein and the mm -hmm. Israeli leaders at the time, yes. Even until today, they may have some problems here and there, but although we can say that the population of Jordan today is basically, because Jordan was called Palestine at one point, I say about 70% of the population are originally Palestinian, but he did not get along very well with the Palestinian refugees after 67 because then you had the PLO running around Jordan carrying AK-47s. There was a number of attempts on the life of King Hussein. And at some point in September of 1970, he let loose his Jordanian forces on the Palestinian camps, which then was called Black September. I don't know if you recall the name, but it was the massacre of the Jordanians on the Palestinians. But the Palestinians blamed Israel for everything, and that became a well-known terrorist organization, Black September, who were responsible for all the plane hijackings and the, the Munich Olympic massacre. Black September. Let's go from geopolitical in the last couple hundred years we've talked about. Let's go back into the Bible. And cool. one, of the, one of the exchanges I always found fascinating was when Abram purchased the cave of Machpelah. Okay. And that transaction is very important as is the transaction when David buys the mountain, okay. Moriah, right? Right, the thrashing floor, exactly. Look, also, there was a place in, in Samaria where Abraham enters the land for the first time, and he's standing upon a hill, alone Moriah. And the Lord says to him, take a look, north, south, east, and west, or everything you see I give to you. Uh, and he says that from, uh, from the great river in the south to the north. He, they're talking about from the Nile up to the... You know, the area of Babylon and the Euphrates. We never officially ever had those boundaries in the land of Israel, but that was the land that was allotted to Abraham by God, right there in the center of the country. Which is why Muslims will argue that God gave you know, Abraham and Ishmael are the, the good side of the equation, if you will, and it was given to them. But this, of course, is much later in history. But if we go back to the text, Abraham was chosen of God out of Ur of the Chaldees, he is the Abrahamic covenant, a unilateral covenant, right? That God will bless the world through Abram, Abraham, out uh, of your descendants. And interesting, the land promise goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Yeah, yeah. So this land is a covenant that God made with Abraham. Interestingly, it's to himself, though. Yes. Abraham's just the agent who's going to administer the covenant. But that exchange in Machpelah, he buys a piece of land. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's one of the oldest transactions we have in the Bible of a land purchase. And it's going to go back just about 3,800 years ago. Yes. Exactly Pretty striking. Yes. Yeah. So now we have this deed, if you will, <laughs> that, that's owned. Now, fast forward through, of course, we've got to come to the book of Judges. And, you know, I have friends in you know, broad and broad Christian circles that disagree with me entirely about Israel because they will say the land no longer plays a part 
that, that is called, we sometimes call replacement theology, that the yes, church yes. replaces Israel. And I go back to Deuteronomy 30. I go back to Romans 9, 10, 11, 12. I go back to Judges chapter 1 and 2. Much of the land had not yet been taken. That very cryptic and chilling passage in there where he, uh, God tells Joshua that your children might learn war. They're going to have to fight for that land. They're going to have to fight. Well, Joshua was a warrior. Yes. They took the land, and then later on, there were the 12 allotments, the 12 tribes. And the official landmark where the Ark of the Covenant was placed was not Jerusalem. Jerusalem at that time was a non-entity. It was a Canaanite city, a Jebusite city. Which was city. never quite taken, right? No. Right? I mean, Joshua, it was not that of an important spot to take. And, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was kept at Shiloh. That was the, the center of Jewish life from there. Until, of course, uh, you know, David takes the, the city, the city. Uh, by the, from the Jebusites back in 3,000 years ago, yes. So he's first allowed to build his own home, and then he stockpiles all the materials for Solomon to build the actual first temple. Right. So we go from a tabernacle complex that's out in the wilderness moving around. Yes. When, the, when the glory of God moves, the cloud by day, the glow by night, manna and so forth in the wilderness wanderings. But now, okay, we're going to build a house. And that is on Mount... Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. The first temple is built. Well, the first temple is actually built. You see, what happened was the Jews thought it would be really cool to go to battle against the Philistines and bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. It's sort of like as a lucky charm. Unfortunately, they lost the battle. And as they were retreating, the Philistines were looting the battlefield and they come across the Ark of the Covenant. And for them, that was a, a very... Big, Big find, issue, yes. Because normally in those days, you would take something that belonged to someone else's God and you put it into your temple to prove that your God's better than his. Unfortunately, all these really weird things started happening. <laughs> like all the statues <laughs> Fall falling over, on their faces yeah. <laughs> and people getting hemorrhoids and whatever. And then what they did was they took the Ark of the Lord, they put it on a wagon pulled by two milk cows, and they let it loose in the valley. And if it goes to the land of the Jews, then we know it was the Jewish God. And that's exactly what happened. And then, you know, it was retreated retrieved once again by the Jews, was placed on top of a hill just out of modern-day Jerusalem until it was taken to Jerusalem. Yes. So we have a number of temple complexes that have been built. And uh, when you take us to the old city and we walk around the complex and we go underground to the so-called Herodian stone and you explain Hadrian and Marduk and Suleiman the Magnificent and all, all the different histories there, interestingly, Ronnie, that's the most contested piece of real estate. Yes. Well, it became the center for three faiths. Now, I'm not going to want to step on toes of Muslims, but I'm going to tell you what happened. According to Islam in the Quran, it mentions that Muhammad flew on his winged horse named Barak, and he went to the high place. Quran doesn't mention Jerusalem by name. It just says that he went to the high place, and from that point, he ascends to heaven. And his horse leaves a hoof print on the stone. And again, it was only a dream, a legend. It never really happened. But they decided that it was Jerusalem. I'm thinking perhaps that because Jerusalem was very important for Judaism and Christianity, that Islam did not want to be known as a third-rate faith. So therefore, they looked for a connection between them and Jerusalem. And that is why Mount Moriah at that time will, will now become the center of of Islam be the third holiest site in Islam after Mecca and Medina. So-called Dome of the Rock and the, the Al-Asmaq. Dome of the Rock. That's the marking yeah. of the ascension of Muhammad yeah. to heaven. 
And this is how many hundreds of years later well, that, than... Yeah. <laughs> well, again, yeah. Six-Day War, the Israelis captured Jerusalem. The Israeli paratroopers are actually on top of the Temple Mount, you know. But the problem was there was never been a uh, contention in the, in the Israeli government to take over the Temple Mount to build a third temple. Most people in Israel, besides the ultra-Orthodox, really don't care if there's a third temple or not. Uh, and it was a very touchy position at that time, meaning that, you know, today we have a million and a half Muslims, Arabs, who are citizens of the land of Israel. Had we done something concerning a destruction of, of the Muslim holy sites, you know, maybe we can defeat seven Arab countries back in 67, but I don't, think, I don't think 22. Yeah. So they kept the custodianship. Look, it's still within the sovereignty of the land of Israel, but the custodianship is still in the hands of the Muslims. Like, we wouldn't take over a church complex, for sure not. So we allow freedom of, uh, of religious belief of all three faiths in the land of Israel. So when um, we used to go up on the, the Temple Mount, walk around, and We still and talk can, about, at we, any time. Yeah, you can't go in the mosque, though. Can't go in a mosque. No. There was a time we could. There was yeah, a time. time. There was a time. Yeah. But it's interesting, the tension in that area, because you have Coptics. You have, the, of course, the Catholic presence over there with the different sites, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Beatitudes, <clears throat> etc. You've got Jews, and you mentioned ultra-Orthodox. Help folks understand the numbers of Jewish sects well, within well, Israel. Okay, well, again, within Goodness. the Jewish community, let's say about 20% are the Orthodox, you know, if people are familiar with the, the gentlemen who wear the black coats and the black hats, but that clothing has nothing to do with Judaism. Like it doesn't say in Deuteronomy, thou shalt wear black. Uh, although really black goes with everything. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, more, it's more of a concept of being not attractive. They don't, so people aren't plain. attractive, plain, very plain. plain, kind of like the Amish or like the early pilgrims that wore plain, very conservative clothing, nothing outlandish. And, and it, you will notice within them, a lot of the young men will have the untrimmed sideburns, many will have beards. I, that may go back also to the, like, Samson was not the, allowed to cut his hair, so therefore they would show their outlook, their outward love for God by not cutting their side curls. Uh, that would remain. But not everybody does that. Right. But then again, within the Jewish community, you may have plenty of people who are religious in a sense, but not necessarily wearing... The black, we call them the Zionist religious, who do serve in the military and do have jobs. Is it fair to say the Zionists want to use military power to, you know, control? No? There's no... You go, back Herschel, you go back to, uh, you know, the, the whole movement of Zionism, right? Was to come back to the land. Actually, what this all happened around 1880, 1890, or during the Ottoman Empire. There's never been an absence of Judaism to the land. There's always been Jews there. Many times the Jewish population were the, were the majority, but we were ruled by somebody else. And with the auspices then of uh, the Baron de Rothschild, he had purchased plots of land from the Ottoman Empire, hoping to establish another Jewish community in the land that was willing to build it up instead of just hanging around and wanting to pray by the holy sites. Uh, changing gears quite a bit, you've led probably thousands of tours. I don't know about thousands. Close, like a lot of hundreds. Uh, you probably close to a thousand, okay. maybe over All the right. years. Okay, okay. What have you learned? You know this stuff like the back of your hand. You've been to Caesarea Philippi countless times. You've heard preachers like me tell 
let's say, okay stories and some really bad exegesis and all points in between. Well, <laughs> What's Ronnie Cohen learned? This is, this is the thing. First of all, people coming to Israel for the first time, it's not Disneyland and it's not a Christian theme park. You know, we don't have people walking around looking like uh, the apostles as tour guides. Um, you have to learn very, very quick that the land of Israel is, is the land of the Bible. Every place that you go to is a real spot. All the archaeological sites that we go to uh, has to do with some scripture in the Bible. We don't go to the archaeological sites because we're archaeologists. We go there because something scriptural happened. I'm old school. I don't believe that archaeology proves the Bible correct. I believe that the Bible proves archaeology correct. Because the moment that we arrive there, we already know what happened because it's written in scripture. So I think that's very important. I think that people who have been reading Bible all their lives and reading about all these places, once they finally go there, they know for sure that, the, that what they're reading is truth. It's not just someone wrote it, you know. It's a life-changing experience because now you notice that the Bible, which it could be just two-dimensional, you know, black typing on white paper, now all of a sudden it's become three-dimensional because you were there standing upon the Mount of Beatitudes. You got baptized in the Jordan. You were there in Jerusalem. So it's a true story. And you come back home as a witness. You're going to start telling everybody, you know what? Everything you've been reading is true. I know. I was there. I love to use the illustration of a tell and people that don't know what a tell is the rubble of a prior city. Yeah, is and you may re- go through the land and all of a sudden you see a hill that doesn't look like it belongs there. Right. Because it's not a hilly area, it's not a mountainous area, but all of a sudden you see like a mound, kind of perfectly rounded. Well, underneath all of that rubble and overgrowth and everything, there's an ancient city. How did that overgrowth all occur? Look, it's like you have Lincoln Logs outside of your home, you live in Arizona, and you leave it there. After about a couple of weeks, you can see dust creeping up on the side. After about a month, maybe one of the logs fell down and left sand and, and is Before getting inside. Long, then gone. within like two months, it's a mound of earth. So what you're looking at in Israel is 3,000 years old. And they would excavate those, repurpose the stone materials, and build on top of it. Exactly. So when we go to Megiddo, Tel Megiddo, there are over 26? 26 levels of civilization. So that's, you know, that I love using that illustration to tell people everywhere you go in Israel, you say you see the Bible, but it's like a tell because something happened there, whether Abraham of Ur the Chaldees, whether the Davidic kingdom, exactly. whether it was when we go to the uh, Har Megiddo and we look yeah. across the hey, valley. And An example, if you do go to Megiddo, which does have 26 levels of civilization, keep in mind that 3,000 years ago when Solomon shows up, He's building on the 16th level. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And it still stands. And, and it's still, still there. It still stands. One last, you know, you're talking to the Western population primarily, people that love the Bible and uh, they're interested in God. What, what would you tell them that you have learned, the biggest thing Ronnie has personally learned about the land and the book? Well, again, personally, when I first started touring Christians coming from abroad, I didn't quite understand this great love that they had for for Scripture. And the expression on their faces when they finally arrive at a place that's mentioned in Scripture. You know, they they can't believe they're standing there. And although I live in the land, in a sense, I take that all for granted because it's part of the landscape. And But when I see the expression on people's faces that they're really in Jerusalem, I'll give you an example. We knew a, a young woman once from Samoa. 
And we started speaking to her, and I told her that, that my wife and I had lived in Jerusalem, and she nearly freaked. She, because of the missionaries that came to Samoa, she thought Jerusalem was in heaven. She didn't know it was a real place. Hmm. And I told her, yes, it's a real place. So I think, I think it is, is that when people finally arrive to the land and they see that what they've been reading all this time is actually true, for me, that's the greatest feeling in the world, knowing that people get excited looking at my backyard. <laughs> Ronnie Cohen has been a dear friend for many, many years, and you can find out more about going to Israel. We hope to do trips again. COVID is it's changed so quickly in the past two years, Ronnie, and now you're telling me there's no vaccine, nothing. Well, this is the thing. We went through a number of stages because nobody knew anything about COVID. You know, in the beginning, you know, the whole country was locked down. I mean, literally, no one went to work. There was no transportation. People stayed at home. No one knew about it. And then little by little, they started getting vaccines together. By the way, Netanyahu, who, who was the, a former prime minister, I think he was the first person in the world to be inoculated, and he did it live on TV. I remember that. Okay. Yep. And then as different strains came out, we had another inoculation and then another inoculation. The numbers at some point last year went down. I mean, it went down to, you know, we had like maybe 17 a day who were getting COVID or we had zero or a hundred. And then with the new strain with Omicron, it jumped up to like 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people a day. But I'm trying to think right now that it's probably uh, herd immunity because people just wanted to get it and get it over with. You know, the symptoms of a flu, after three days you go back to work. They sort of stopped tourism because they thought that foreigners were the ones that were spreading the disease. And and to, to Israel's defense, it's a small country. Yes, exactly. And if you have an outbreak. Yeah. So basically with Omicron, because they felt that the strain came from South Africa originally. So then they closed the airports for a period of time. And I'm talking just a few months ago. So then they decided that it was such a, a – the strain was not like Delta – so anyone wanting to come visit in Israel, they required vaccinations and then do a PCR before you arrived. Do a PCR when you do arrive. But now, you don't even need to be vaccinated Just in order come. To, be, to come to Israel. Uh, you still have to do a PCR test, but that's basically it. Ronnie, thanks for being on In Context. And if you want to find out more about going to Israel, you'll find information on our site about upcoming tours. God willing, 23, we hope to go back to Israel. And um, if you've never been, I can't think of a better group to go with than In Context. And you might just have Ronnie Cohen on the bus telling you all kinds of stories about the Bible and 1970s music. <laughs> Great. Okay. So thank Thanks. you very much. And shalom from Tennessee. Thanks, Ronnie. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. <laughs>